0: This is the Cloud Onode podcast, your launchpad for Amazon Web Services.
1: Welcome to the Cloud Onode podcast. My name is Andreas, and today I'm joined by two special guests, John Culkin and Mike Zazun. We are on a mission to explore Amazon Web Services. So, listen to the Cloud Onode podcast to deepen your AWS knowledge, stay up to date, and be inspired. This is episode 45, and we are recording this on April 7th, 2020. This podcast in particular, and Cloud Out in general, is only possible through donations from our supporters. So thanks to Alan Leach, Alex Dupree, Jason Yorty, Jeff Finlay, Jay Hartley, Jura Martinka, Ken Snyder, Torsten Höger, Todd Valentine, and all the anonymous supporters for your help. Please consider becoming a supporter of our work as well, You'll find all the details at cloudonaut.io. Support us as well in the show notes. So, John and Mike, back to you. So, it seems like your story began at CloudReach, where you both worked as cloud architects back in 2018, something like that. And nowadays, you both are working as senior solution architects for Amazon Web Service. Did I summarize your journey correctly or did I miss something?
2: That's a pretty good summary. Um, we're we're lucky enough to know each other at two jobs, to have a lot of great experience together, learned a lot of things. So that helped us get here today.
1: So perfect. And on top of that, you have decided to write a book together. So the book is called The AWS Cookbook. So could you tell us a little bit on what led you to do so? So why did you decide to take such a crazy project and write a book?
0: <laughs> I can take that one. Uh, y- you know, John and I spent a lot of time working together with with customers, and um, there there was always some recurring themes. And really, we identified just a common need um, that 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 we saw um, just for nice, concise um, examples of how to do certain things in AWS. And people really appreciated when we would work with them directly. And we thought, what if we could maybe do that at a broader scale? Um, just very quick. Um, Quick and, and and powerful solutions um, to certain little problems and and um, challenges you might run into. So we saw a need there, and um, it was it was a really fun project uh, um, to uh, go through.
1: Perfect. So, so I'm currently writing um, uh, the third edition of the book that I've written together with Michael, my brother, AWS in Action. So and that's why I am interested in the experience uh, of writing a book. <laughs> so what was the process like for you? How long did it take from start to the book having the publisher publishing the book? What did you learn on the way? What were the obstacles? So I think many of our listeners are also very interested in learning about the process of writing a technical book.
2: I'm sure as you know it's it's challenging and it is a lot of work. It, it took us maybe a- around a year and a half, I think, Mike, and there were some ups and downs and changes along the way. One, one big change that we had was um, the CDK updated from one to two, and we use the CDK a little bit in the book. So I had to go back and rewrite some code, but some things that worked well for us were just consistently working at the book. So setting a goal, even if it's 100 words a day, if it's two lines of code, you have to just uh, just to get started. And just get moving, and you'll find more come out. Um, one one of the models I had that I think we used a little bit was write with fire, edit with ice. So sometimes you just need to throw words on paper, and then you need to come back when you're in a different mindset to really edit those and crystallize them a little bit.
0: To definitely echo that one. Um, you know, we we got a lot of progress there, and you know, our uh, Jeff Barr he he wrote our forward. Um, we graciously thank him for that, and and he gave us a tip, kind of early on as well and once we established our final form really how we wanted to present each recipe once we had that framework the whole process really just fell into place it was it was nice to have our um uh, just that that pattern and the solutions became very clear how we wanted to present each uh recipe so that was really good advice we got from jeff on there
1: perfect thanks for sharing um your story there so before we start looking more detailed into the book, um, so I expect that what 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 you've written in the book is probably what you learned uh, in your day to day work. Um, maybe you can could you maybe share a little bit about how um, your typical work day looks like, what you're working on. So where are all these learnings coming from? Basically, that's what I'm interested
0: in. Want to start with that one, John?
2: Sure, and I think you're mostly correct there with that with that assumption, but I'll only modify it that, you know, the majority I think of the recipes are things that we've learned in the past and have explained to customers and really felt were foundational knowledge or really some nice nice to know knowledge, some tips and tricks, if you will, that we really wanted to impart as part of the book. But we really wanted to learn while we were creating this book. So there's some recipes that we picked out that we originally didn't know about and we used the book writing process as a way to really to learn new recipes. What do you think about that, Mike?
0: Yeah, for sure. There were definitely a few, especially, you know, in, in maybe the AI ML uh, section where I, I really day-to-day don't interact with those services quite as much. Um, but when we uncovered what was possible there in just a few short steps, it was it was really amazing, Um you know, going through and being able to redact PII from a document automatically with comprehend or, or transcribe a podcast, uh, just some of those really quick um, solutions there were really easy. And it was, it was was pretty clear why that was powerful to show, and really gave me a lot of ideas on how to possibly use those day to day, even though I don't really pick those up, um, you know, during my my day work with AWS.
1: Okay, so that means um, your day work at AWS is, um, is it consulting clients or whats is, what is what you're doing in your day work?
2: I work, um, as you mentioned, Mike and I previously worked at CloudReach, an AWS partner. I now work in the partner organizations kind of on the other side of that partner fence, if you will. So I help partners really envision um, aligned so business solutions to AWS services and then deliver those. So really helping partners deliver for customers. So a little bit different for me, but Mike's in a little bit different role now.
0: I do work in AWS's professional services organization, specifically with financial services customers. And uh, my role as an architect is to work directly with customers on their migrations or optimizations. Um, and and I do work directly with with our customers. It most oftentimes, um, right next to partners as well.
1: Okay, but but writing the book is basically what you do in your free time. Is that is that correct? So this is a side project that you're doing outside of work? Yes. Wow. <laughs> well, then congratulations on the achievement, of course. Uh, doing all that beside a day job is maybe, probably, or is even more impressive, I would say, <laughs> for everyone who has tried writing a book. A lot of late, <laughs> late nights. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so... Um, Thanks for sharing a little bit about um, yourself. And next, I want to dive into the AWS Cookbook a little bit more. So I had a look uh, through the cookbook, and what I um, noticed right away is it really feels like a cookbook. <laughs> so because you find a lot of different recipes in there, and you can go just go through the book and find what's out of interest, out of interest for you, or what might fit into your mood or something like that so i really enjoy um the format so can you share maybe a little bit about the the way the book is structured and your intention with that
0: i can take a stab at that one um y- you know the intent there is really it, it's 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 really hard to write um a, a, a book that covers everything at aws but so we you know we narrowed the scope down just to some some high level categories that that are pretty common and then Really, our intent was to be able to pick up the book and turn to any page or the start of any recipe, I should say, and be able to go through it without prior knowledge. So we really give all of the um, the context that you would need to go through, even if you haven't had much experience with a certain area, you could just pick it up, go through just like you would a cookbook where maybe you turn to the middle and you could make a Mediterranean dish or maybe um, go to the last chapter and make some pizza, um, you know, really, um, give a reader everything they need to get a certain scenario done, no matter where they pick up in the book. If you read through it sequentially, you, you, you know, there might be some value there, but really being able to pick it up anywhere, um, however you're feeling that day, is was our intent.
2: Yeah, we loved O'Reilly's um, kind of cookbook series and the general format that it presented. One, because of all the things Mike said, but uh, the only thing I would add was, I loved how it starts out with a problem statement. Because a lot of times we look at these AWS services as a lot of great, fantastic building blocks that can be assembled and put into action, as you would agree. Um, So we wanted to really set out initially to define what we were trying to solve, talk about how we solved it, go about solving it in the steps, and then talk about it with a discussion that says, Here's why we made those choices. Here's why you might have a different scenario in your day-to-day life at your customer, at your client, at your work, and then we fi- we finish each recipe with a challenge. So if you really like that, or if you wanted to, you know, think about a way to extend it, we offer a challenge to really let the the reader go off on their own.
1: Perfect. Yeah, I really I really like the format as well. So, and the good news for our listeners is that you are bringing some of your recipes to this podcast episode. So, basically, this will be a a short excerpt of the book in audio form. (laughs) So, that's really, really cool. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, So, um, one of the recipes is about testing IAM policies with the IAM Policy Simulator. So I would really appreciate if you would walk us through this recipe.
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, we'll go through this recipe, uh, talk about how it comes together. We can present um, as you would read in the book. And um, hopefully we can provide a link out where you can actually access a free copy of this recipe and several others.
1: Absolutely. You will find all that in the show notes. Um, So uh, check that out.
0: Fantastic. So testing IAM policies with the IAM policy simulator. So we start with a problem statement. So you have an IAM policy that you would like to put into use, but you would also like to test its its effectiveness first. Um, This is a great pattern uh, to to start to learn. So the solution we present is attach an IAM policy to an IAM role and simulate the actions with the IAM policy simulator. And we provide a, a, a solution figure um, image that you can see how um, everything comes together. So step one, we create a file that is a, a assume role policy, and we provide the content for you. And we also provide this file pre-built for you in our GitHub repository. You'll find a link to that in the show notes
1: so so basically this is for me so so just i'm just thinking about so when when is it important to do so so this is when i have the task of coming up with an iam policy let's say for an application that runs on easy two or lambda and i want to make sure that the iam policy that i defined is really what i need so i basically can now simulate um the api calls that i want to do um with the help of that solution to make sure, I can test it a little bit before I actually run something in my AWS account. Is that, is that a good summary?
0: That's exactly right. So we actually show how to build this role and eventually we'll give some validation steps which will let you make some mock calls using the IAM policy simulator. And the policy simulator will report back to you to say this call was allowed and conversely we'll show a call that's not allowed and it'll tell you why the call isn't allowed um, with with the results.
1: Okay, so that that's very interesting. Actually, I learned about the possibility to do so <laughs> yesterday because I didn't know that there is an API for that. So very very interesting. So so how do I use the simulator? Uh, what do I have to do to to get that running?
0: So really, we we we, we create a file. Uh, it's called an assume role policy, and then we uh we actually provide this in our repository and we uh then create a role using that assume role policy this role is uh is uh going to eventually have a uh role policy that we attach a managed policy to um it's uh it's the Amazon EC2 read only access policy and the The result of running through the steps to build this is you'll have a role with a single policy attached that is the Amazon EC2 read-only access managed policy. That will let us run through some validation checks that we can use the IAM policy simulator with to see which actions might be permitted and which actions might not be permitted. So our first validation step that we run after we attach the EC2 read-only access is to try to test against the EC2 create-internet-gateway action. So we're going to tell the IAM policy simulator to say, is this action allowed with the role that we created? And so passing EC2 create-internet-gateway in outputs an implicit deny. So that's telling us that we haven't actually granted the ability to create an internet gateway with this role. We've only given it EC2 read-only access. So this is expected behavior, and the policy simulator is telling us that, indeed, uh, that create internet gateway action is not allowed.
2: Yeah, this this is great, because these are some scenarios you might see at a customer site uh, maybe a, a developer isn't comfortable with AWS yet, and they really want to make sure that they don't have the ability to attach an internet gateway to a VPC for some some com- compliance or security concern. So, great little CLI command to really specify the policy and then the action you're trying to uh, to simulate and see what what the result was without actually trying it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, I think that's that's no, uh, worth mentioning here again. So. Basically, um, what you can do with the simulator uh, is you have uh, the AWS CLI allows you to call uh, to, to simulate calls to the AWS APIs. In this case, the EC2 API uh, with a certain IAM role, and then you get the result back. What what would happen if you do the call? What would IAM say? <laughs> would it allow or deny um, the specific uh, actions? That's that's really interesting, and you can simulate all of that with uh, the aws command line interface which i find very interesting Um, yeah that's really really helpful
2: you could see how this could be extended into um, compliance as code framework or pipeline if you will to make sure that specific actions are not allowed by any roles that you create and policies that you then attach to them so really giving you that, that confidence that there wasn't an implicit deny or even an explicit deny if your policy had that in it. So really a lot of ways you could take them. And the challenge we give for this recipe is to simulate the effect of a permissions boundary on an IAM principle. So moving beyond IAM roles and policies um, a different way. Pretty pretty slick.
1: So the thing is, the simulator not only works for basically basic IAM permissions with a role and a policy, it works with permission boundaries as well does it do you know does it also work with service control policies
0: it does um so we actually get into that into the discussion a little bit uh, after you run through the validation checks so um it works with identity-based policies iam permissions boundaries service control policies and also resource-based policies so you can really use it um at a quite a broad scale um to simulate actions
1: Okay, so you could even make sure, for example, let's say your application really depends on accessing data on S3. You could even use that to make sure that any changes that you make do not break the application accessing the data or something like that. So that's, that could be really helpful in, as part of a deployment pipeline uh, that you make sure you're not breaking um, your systems with all those complex uh, configurations, SCPs, permission boundaries and so on which is quite interesting probably also for um for administrators of AWS organizations that are responsible for those SCPs because i've seen enterprises failing <laughs> when rolling out those SCPs without thoughtfully testing those yeah that's a very um very great scenario for that as well
0: Absolutely. Uh, testing SCPs is one of the things that a lot of people struggle with, and this can really help streamline your approach for building a really nice uh, testing framework for that.
1: Okay, cool. So is there anything to add about this recipe, about the IAM policy simulator, or did we cover the important parts?
0: Well, we we do in the validation checks show how a EC2 describe instances is allowed, and we do give the expected output of that allow um, with uh, the text of the book um, and similarly on our, uh, on our GitHub for this recipe. So um, easy to read only access does permit the EC2 describe instances command to run. And so it's, um, it's nice to see the allow, but also why it's allowed. It's telling us that the IAM policy is actually allowing the, that, that read to happen. Um, so we give both a deny and an, and an allow, and you can see both um and how they might come together.
2: And not only, you know, I think a good thing to call out too is the line and column, the start and stop of what is allowing that. So if, if it was allowed and in, in our example, maybe we didn't want it to be allowed, we could really pinpoint where that was and go in and take it out quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. So you get debugging information out of that as well, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, the next recipe I found in your book and uh, that I want to ask you about is um, you have a recipe for automatically scanning images in ECR. So um, as far as I understand the problem, um, when you containerize your application, you store the container images probably on ECR because that's the most convenient service to deploy them on AWS later. Um, but um, similar to an, an Amazon machine image in AMI, you want to know when things inside the container uh, contain any security vulnerabilities. So the question is, how do you make sure you get notified uh, about those? So I'm really looking forward uh, to um, walking us through the solution.
0: Absolutely. So uh, scanning container images is is, is a really good practice uh, to increase your security posture, um, especially when you're building... uh, you know pipelines and automation, and you're routinely pushing images. Um, being able to have the image scanned and get a result back with with all of the CVSS scores is is really um, really powerful. So you could, you know, potentially fail a build if you don't meet a certain um, uh, security posture. Um, so what we present is a quite simple scenario. We have a container image that we want to push uh, to a repository, and we want to have the image scanned immediately on push and then have the results returned to us. And so with that, we create an ECR repository, and then we change the configuration after we create the repository to say uh, the image scanning configuration scan on push equals true, and we provide the CLI command for that. Within the context of this recipe, we actually have readers an old version of the NGINX uh, official container image, which we know to have some some medium uh, score vulnerabilities in. And we have them use that to just retag and push to the repository to validate that the the scanning uh, configuration on push worked. And so going through those steps... Uh, we have we have five steps here total. It probably takes just a couple minutes to run through for a reader. Once once that image is pushed to ECR, we show the reader how to use the describe image scan findings command to then report back what the security vulnerabilities of that image are.
2: I think it's a great example of of taking uh, some preparation steps in this case. The preparation step we have is, you know, just creating an ECR repo, and then and then modifying it so it'll work. If you don't have an ECR repo, we'll walk you through those steps to create one. But it will also work if you have an existing ECR repo to uh, to see how you can modify it with a CLI command to then scan images on on push. And then I love seeing in the book the um, example outputs. So you're going to see what you would. Expect on your CLI the output to let you know that the, the command worked or did not work.
1: Absolutely, that that's really great. So, um, so, so basically, the the recipe that you describe is um, you whenever you push a new image to the repository, it automatically gets scanned. So this could again be part of a deployment pipeline. So after you have been building and pushing your image, you could. Um, wait for those checks to complete and um, validate the results so um, do you also have a a challenge uh, for for this example
0: yeah this example we actually give the reader two challenges in some cases um, we couldn't narrow uh, the possibilities down we just thought it was really fun to come up with some of the challenges and, and try them out ourselves so the first challenge we we said was remediate the vulnerability by updating the image with the latest NGINX container image. And so presumably a reader would pull the latest or a known um, good, good copy of the NGINX container image and um, tag it, push it, and then check the results to see that the vulnerabilities that were initially described have then gone away. The second challenge that we uh, have readers go through is configuring an SNS topic to send you an email when vulnerabilities are detected in your repository. So that's a pretty powerful um, uh, challenge to have there in, in, in terms of maintaining your posture while you might be running a certain container image in, in your environment. If, if a new vulnerability comes out, you could potentially receive an email um, uh, describing that vulnerability to let you take action um, and, and, and update your uh, Dockerfile dependencies or whatever um, might have been found.
1: Very good, very good. So uh, actually, I've um, I've configured an SNS topic for those kinds of notifications um, myself as well to get notified about um, those checks. So one thing about how does how does all that work <laughs> behind? And the scenes. So, do you know how the ECR scanning works? So, how do they create the reports that are coming out of the the check? Do we have any insights into that?
0: We do. Um, in our discussion, we talk about the database that uh, that is used behind the scenes. It's it's based on the open source Clair project. We provide a link to the um, documentation there in discussion of this recipe. Um, so it, it is it is using a, um, a good source of truth um, from the open source Clare project.
2: One warning we call out is this is not a continuous scan, so we would just, um, one, recommend that you don't use old versions of NGINX. <laughs> of course, we were just using that old version to create the warning. But, you know, we really encourage everybody to routinely trigger a push, which would trigger this automatic scan, there is a way also to cause a manual scan to occur if you're looking for that um, you know, point in time validation.
1: Yes, uh, I think as far as... I, it, absolutely, that's important because when you have a container image running and you do not deploy any changes to it, you will never notice that maybe some vulnerability has come up for the container image that you're using. So uh, running those checks uh, frequently is definitely advisable i don't know is there a built-in way to do so nowadays or is it still something you have to come up with yourself as a lambda function or something similar to trigger that
0: not exactly sure if there's a built-in way to do that right now to schedule a routine scan Mm.
1: because i remember having implemented i think something with lambda or or something similar that triggers those checks um, from time to time. Um, yeah, that's, for example, one possible workaround for that to to make sure you're getting notified um, about the running image. And then you can just um, trigger a scan for the image that's currently running in test and production or something like that. Um, that was helpful for the scenario that I um, implemented. Is there is there anything to add about... Uh, this recipe about scamming container images on Ecr or do we uh, did we cover everything inf- important here
0: I think we covered everything um, again we provide some cleanup steps to remove the image that was pushed and also delete the repository if you had created one for the purposes of this recipe and so your environments return back to the way it was
1: okay perfect so so I really enjoyed those two recipes so far and I think we have time for a third one, do we?
2: Absolutely.
1: Okay, perfect. So, <laughs> of so, so course, I found another one that is really interesting, and I think this is definitely something that is lesser known. It is about uh, redacting personally identifiable information uh, from text, and I've never heard about that solution. So I'm really looking forward uh, for you talking me through that. So how does that work, and when do I need it?
0: <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a fun one. So um, comprehend p- powerful service. This is in uh, chapter eight of the book. Um, so really, we present a problem stating that you have a document with potential personally identifiable information in it, and you'd like to remove the PII before more processing of the document occurs. And so um, we propose the solution to create some sample data and store it in an S3 bucket, and then launch an Amazon Comprehend job to detect and redact PII entries. And then you can review the results from uh, Amazon Comprehend.
2: And this was this is a great uh, recipe, as you mentioned, to show some advanced capability. But going back to one of our earlier points about how we learned while we were writing the book, Uh, One of the challenges with this recipe was we need personally identifiable information. We need PII. I wasn't going to put my social security number out there or my information. So we found a really great Python project uh, called Faker. So we were able to use that to just install and generate test data. So we we walked the reader through how to do that. So everybody's going to have their own fake data that then they would upload to the S3 bucket for the Comprehend job to scan.
0: Yeah, awesome. Um, we, we, We do give some preparation steps here when we start going through the recipe. Really, it's having the readers create a S3 bucket they can use for this example. And so once the bucket's created, we actually go through and we create an IAM role for Comprehend to be able to interact with our bucket. And so we walk the reader through going through those steps. Once the sample data is up on the S3 bucket, we can start a PII entities detection job with Comprehend. And that might sound complicated, but we break it down into a one-line command. And so what we're doing is telling um, Comprehend to detect bank account numbers, bank routing, credit debit numbers, credit debit CVV, and several other types of PII And we actually give that uh, entire config command uh, to readers to go through. So you could customize this to your needs or just run against every PII entity type.
2: And I think one, one line that we call out with a tip here is that are we trying to redact the PII or are we trying to detect it? So two different use cases. One would be if this information needs to be processed downstream and it cannot include PII, Then we will redact it so that my name, for for example, would still be present, but not my social security number. However, if we have a document and we just want to determine, yes, no, is there PII PII included in the document, we can detect it as well. So um, pretty powerful what we could do just with one one command and changing a few options.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like the recipe. So it works you walk you through the steps, step-by-step, um, step, the different commands that you have to execute to prepare the data, to uh, call the AWS CLI to make that happen. So it's really straightforward and um, shows you really in a really impressive way what you can do with the comprehensive service. I didn't know about that, that you can remove personal identifier information because I think that's sometimes very useful. For example, if you have to prepare test data For a test environment, you you might be um, required to remove uh, all that information before you use it for testing purposes, something like that. That's really, uh, really interesting. Okay. So um, what did we miss? So basically, um, the recipe is about setting everything up, preparing the data, starting the job, and then um, also validating the results, I would assume. Is that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You've got it. And the challenge we mentioned here is um, similar to my point before about the challenge we have is to label the type of PII. So not only can it detect PII, but then label the type so that you can make decisions um, based upon it. So that's pretty, um, pretty powerful. I I like what Mike said about our preparation step, um, the unique S3 bucket name, which, of course, is needed so everybody is not using the same S3 bucket, but I think that's a great example of one of the the quick one-liners that we included. It was a little bit overkill, but for our unique names, our unique suffixes, we used the Secrets Manager get random password, of course, because it's an AWS book. There are other ways to do that, of course, on the CLI, but I uh, I was happy to know that Secrets Manager provided a CLI command to just get random passwords, and we were able to utilize it for the book. So just another really interesting tidbit, I thought. (laughs)
1: yeah absolutely absolutely so what else is important or what else did you find out while diving into that topic um what other areas of AWS, or what other uh, features are uh, interesting when it comes to working with personally identifiable information well
0: well certainly there's um you know the ability to take this and modify it and scale it for you know jobs that you might have that are um you know, new and predictable, but if you have to do this at scale, um, some customers are using Amazon Macy to do this. It's a really powerful service that you can point at your entire S3, uh, estate, um, if you will, um, or your data lake, if you want to call it that, um, to detect PII within. Um, so Macy can do that at at a, at a very large scale. Um, so, something really interesting to look at if you are a large company that needs this type of capability
1: thanks a lot for sharing those recipes from the aws cookbook with us so as promised i will add the details about the examples that we have been going through of course about the book and where you can buy it (laughs) as well um to the show notes is there anything else you want to add you want to share um, before i'm closing this episode
2: One quick thought I had, and we we really appreciate the time here to go through these, again, free recipes that we'll link to, and we hope if you like them, you might consider the book. But we also use the CDK in a lot of recipes to create or prepare an environment for the readers to work a recipe in. And especially um, with the recent release of the CDK version 2, it's really been a pleasure to use it to programmatically create infrastructure, and then interact with it. So an example might be if, if we had a, a recipe that we wanted to show readers how to encrypt an existing RDS database. Well, of course, that assumes they have an existing RDS database, and we didn't want the reader to spend a lot of time creating that. We were able to use the CDK to prepare those environments and then show the reader a way to interact with that environment that was created so i think it's a really powerful pattern and i just hope that um the readers can consider it
1: perfect thank you very much for sharing that that's a very great way to basically prepare the environments i really like that okay so Thank you very much, Mike and John, for joining me for this podcast episode. It was a pleasure to talk to you, to learn about about how you wrote the book <laughs> and also about the recipes in it. I really uh, like the format. I think it's um, a very useful book. You will learn something out of it. I'm, def- I'm 100% sure. <laughs> Even I um, found a lot of chapters, a lot of recipes um, that were very interesting. So thanks a lot um, for joining and um, I wish you a huge success with uh, this book.
0: Thank you so much and good luck with volume three of yours. Thanks so much for having us.
1: (laughs) Thank you. So did you learn something new by listening to this podcast episode? Then tell your friends and coworkers about it. Also, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find our contact details in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Bye.